0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Journalism lost a trailblazing voice yesterday. Cokie Roberts, who covered Congress for NPR beginning in the 1970s and later joined ABC News. She continued the popular Ask Cokie segment on NPR even as she battled breast cancer. Schooled early in political rivalries in genteel southern manners, she became a legendary reporter and a best-selling author. We caught up with Scott Simon, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday, just after learning about the news, to ask him about his longtime colleague and friend. Scott Simon, I'm so sorry for your loss.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, um, thank you. It's it's a hard day around here, Uh, and not just for those of us who knew Cokie, um, and particularly, I think, for Nina Totenberg, Linda Wertheimer, Susan Stamberg, who were so close to her. But I think people like me who were of that next generation of friends and then people who would see her when she came in but grew up listening to her. It's uh, it's very, very hard to lose that voice and, and her presence in our lives.
0: That's That's been resonating here in our newsroom, certainly. But, you know, she was known as one of the founding mothers of NPR with the women that you mentioned early in the 1970s you were Chicago bureau chief i think at the time mm-hmm. so what was it like working for this news organization with these female powerhouses who apparently called themselves the fallopian club
1: yes <laughs> they did and where they and where they sat in the newsroom was sometimes called the Fallopian Jungle, uh, that's, that's how they'd refer to it. Uh, you know, come on in here, they would say to an editor or something like that. I was greatly flattered to be, in the mildest way, associated with them because they made us. They made the sound of NPR. They made the signature credibility of NPR. They made uh, the distinct and original voice of NPR apparent to people. Um, I thought it was great, and, and certainly it was at a, a time that's almost difficult to understand. And I say that as the father of two daughters, I'm glad it's it's difficult to understand. But not that difficult, I think, to understand for uh, any woman in the workplace. And um, they, they made NPR credible, they made it aggressive, they made it uh, believable. They uh, they made it competitive, and uh, you know Koki's voice was uh, was preeminent. I mean, w- when she when she talked about the U.S. Congress, it was kind of as if she was describing her own backyard.
0: Well, in some ways it was, wasn't it? In some he- ways
1: it was, of course, because she was uh, she was the daughter of what ultimately was two members of Congress, uh, Hale Boggs, and then uh, and then Lindy Boggs. And I think as a result of that, she certainly uh, a politician couldn't play her for a fool. No one could play her for a fool. But at the same time, she wasn't smug or sanctimonious about journalism. She had this great gift for for looking below the surface, for understanding that it's a human enterprise and a human institution, and she would treat people as human beings. This applied to those of us who were around her and below her and, 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 and certainly applied to the politicians whom she interviewed. I think she was unrelentingly tough when it was called for. But she also understood that it was a business and that she uh, she could treat it in a business-like and, and professional way, and it could be done with mutual respect on both sides.
0: I'd love to play something that speaks with uh, to that in a way, growing up the mm-hmm. daughter of ultimately two members of Congress, and how that informed her as a journalist. Here she is. She's speaking with Terry Gross. This is about the morning after an election day, following a particularly bitter, nasty campaign in 1952. Cookie was seven at the time, but her older sister, Barbara, picked up the phone.
2: The counting had gone on all night long, and uh, the phone rang the morning after the election. Uh, and my sister, who was 12, 12 answered the phone, and um, the the person on the other end asked to speak to my father, and she said, he's asleep, and he's been up all night, and I, I will not awaken him. And um, uh, the guy on the other end says, well, uh, what does he think about the election? And Barbara says, well, he knows he lost. And uh, <laughs> But then she, at 12, had the sense to say, you know, who is this anyway? And he said that he was a reporter for the afternoon paper. And she said, look, I'm only 12 years old. You can't use a word I said to you. <laughs> and, um, and that afternoon's paper came out with the headline, Source Close to Hale Boggs Concedes Election. So, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. And um, and, that is a, and that kind of thing happens much more often than any of us would like to believe. <laughs> she did later say that
0: uh, in a commencement speech to a journalism school, first do no harm. That was part of her tactic. Uh, yeah. and, and you know it's
1: her, i I was at her sister's funeral it's been a number of years ago, but she became the mayor of Princeton, New Jersey. Mm. What and, an impressive family oh my gosh, and I remember there had been i got to be careful about this, but there had been some friction with the governor of New Jersey at that particular point, political, not personal, but it was political, and it left some hard feelings. They, they, I think they'd even run against each other. And there were and there were people that said, you know, he wants to come to the funeral at the last minute should we let him. And I remember it was Cokie who said, if the governor wants to come and pay his respects to our sister, we will welcome the governor. Mm. And she had a way of making people concentrate on the right things and uh, look into the best part of themselves and uh, and do the right thing.
0: This is On Second Thought from GPB. We're going to take a quick break and come back to my conversation with Scott Simon, remembering his friend and colleague, Cokie Roberts. As I've been watching social media and other people react to her death, many of them say things like, I grew up listening to her voice. She felt like part of my family. That's one of the things that public radio has brought to so many people's lives. We are a family here. GPB is made up of not just the people who make the radio and make it run, but all of the people who listen. That's what connects us. That is the kind of special magic that we hope that you will support. Join us during our fall membership drive. Here's how to do it. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and my guest, Scott Simon, is remembering his friend and colleague, Cokie Roberts, who died yesterday at age 75 from complications of breast cancer. Well, she was also a number one best-selling author. Uh, you spoke with her in 2009. This was upon the re-release of her book, We Are Our Mother's Daughters, which brings, again, her personal experience to the nature of w-
1: women's stories. Let's hear that. You do find a common theme between all these lives you talk about, which is caretaking.
2: That's right. I find several common themes, which I was somewhat surprised to find. One is that women are caretakers. We take care of our children and our friends and our spouses and our mothers. Um, Our communities need us desperately. So we do. I think it's one of our great talents. I also learned how much women take care of... Other women coming up. So, was Koki a caretaker for you and others there at NPR?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, um, she was unfailingly kind, she was unfailingly considerate, uh, she shared advice. Uh, sometimes, even, I guess, when people didn 't share it with her <laughs> 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 or thought or thought it wasn't what they wanted to hear at that particular moment. She was absolutely a caretaker, and you know, I found myself quoting Koki to our daughters just this morning, oh not about politics per se, but about school uniforms, both of which sometimes makes them bridal. And I said, you know, babies, as the great Cookie Roberts always says, there's a lot to be said for just the uniform you take off and put on the back of a chair and put it on the next day and get going. (laughs) And that, you know, that was a philosophy that she, I think, applied to a lot of work. And I think it's very important, as I tell my daughters now, to work hard and be ambitious and it's also important to have a life. It's also important to have friends, to have family, to to make time for them in your lives and also make them central to the ambitions that you have to To make a place for faith i mean i don 't i don 't mind saying she was a person of faith, and that can be unusual in journalism mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know un- unapologetically so, and she also was not an apologist for her faith, but uh, she treated that as a news story when she needed to, but at the same time it was it was a way of signaling there 's something that 's more important to us than work, more important to us th- than I think our temporal ambitions, and that there is life adds up to something that's worth caring about and worth expending our love on and and that to me i think was a very important lesson that she imparted to all of us men and women not not just how to get ahead but how to have a life mm-hmm. which she
0: wrote about extent with her husband and she also published an op-ed that later got her in a lot of trouble this was during the election campaign of donald trump in 2016 And she called with her husband in an op-ed for the Republican Party not to nominate Trump as one of the least qualified candidates ever to make a serious run for the presidency. That was a bridge too far for NPR, which no longer used her as an analyst after that. But she had watched the nature, not just of reporting, but of politics change in her lifetime from when she grew up, when Democrats and Republicans were all circling around each other in a much different way.
1: She had... Had grown up in a time that, you know, gosh knows, we could, we could all figure out a hundred different things that were wrong with it. But there was a professional respect, I think, in, uh, among members of Congress of both parties. That, uh, and she'd grown up in uh, In a world where they understood that they were passengers on the same ship and that they had a mutual interest in trying to piloting it to a to a safe harbor, and they understood each other personally, the kind of pressures that were on them professionally and personally. And that this was a way that you could use to uh, communicate with each other and and care about each other with uh, mutual respect. And then, of course, we had a a circumstance in our national political life, let me just put it that way, where, you know, somebody who didn't treasure it that much, and not just one person, but I I, I think it's safe to say that uh, one person is, I I think, particularly become associated with it and benefited from it, but I, I think that there's a lot of this thread in our public life at this particular point. And that she, I think, quite properly understood that in the long run that's going, to be, that's going to be very poisonous for us. That's going to prevent us from making progress in this country. That's the, that kind of destroys the underpinnings of a democracy if you can't give and take with each other and treat with each other. And I think that's something that, that certainly saddened her and made her wonder how we're going to pull out of that kind of tailspin.
0: Well, and she has helped us navigate the history that brought us here in the Ask Koki series on NPR. You know, we've talked about her early years as a woman in a male-dominated field. Her many books about women, but her accomplishments go f- and her impact of her voice go far beyond gender. Is it a mistake to to remember Cokie Roberts as you know a founding mother rather than just a great journalist?
1: No, I I think that absolutely. Uh, emphasizes a role that she played in our society. I mean, and and she was both. I think we ought to be capable of recognizing, uh, absolutely recognizing both. Look, I mean, she, I don't know how many stories I heard over the years about she would be interviewing a politician and they would put a hand someplace where they shouldn't, and uh, she would take off their hand and just ask them a tough question. She was very much aware of the fact that she was interviewing people who, uh, some senators who who would see her only as a woman and would not see through to the talented journalist that she was and she She made certain that they looked at her in a different way Let me put it that way mm. and I think she felt that this was that this was part of of what she brought to the profession uh, that that you know she she had the strength to to stare people down and to be able to accomplish things and uh I think it's important for uh, women in the business now to know how Cokie and Nina and Linda and Susan Stamberg and many others that we could mention, uh, I, the price that they paid and the risks that they took and the exposure that they had before the public that made all that possible. And Cokie was very definitely part of that important group of women that uh, that secured those rights and those greater prospects for young women. Um, and That's an immeasurable compliment in in American life. It absolutely enhances her reputation and her standing as a great journalist.
0: Scott Simon, thank you so much for your time.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Scott Simon, he's host of Weekend Edition Saturday. He's a longtime colleague and friend of Cokie Roberts. He's also a bestselling author of Unforgettable, A Son, A Mother, and the Lessons of a Lifetime. Imagine a door shuts and you see a flash of yellow. A bottle opens and you experience sparkles of light blue, a baby cries, and the world goes red. For people with synesthesia, this blending of sound and color, or any two senses, is just part of daily life, an extraordinary part. From Vincent Van Gogh to Charlie XCX, many accomplished artists are thought to have had synesthesia. Sienna Altiz does, too. She's a sensory music artist based in Atlanta who uses her unique perspective to create musical experiences that relax people. Her new album, Sleeping Waters, comes out next month. But she's here with us as part of GBB's Music Month. And Sienna, welcome. Hi. (laughs) Thanks so much for being here. Well, I'm going to start right in because you say that your work is meant to be experienced. So let's experience Kumano. I've described your work as experimental, acoustic, mystical. Is anybody right? I mean, how do you describe it?
3: All of the above. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've had some people describe it as a religious experience. Um, I've had very emotional responses too. So, I, I, it it's completely personal. Just depends on who's here. It depends on who they are and where they are in that very
0: moment. How did you discover your synesthesia? I I mentioned that it's this blending of two different senses. When did you first realize you were seeing or experiencing the world differently?
3: I was about 21. And I asked a, a girlfriend of mine when we were in church and we were listening to this worship band. And I said, hey, you know, do you see colors and stuff when you're listening to this music? And she says, yeah, of course, everybody does. And I said, well, okay. I tucked it, and I didn't think anything else about it. I moved to China about a year later, and I was working with a band there. And there was a guitarist. He mentioned a song that he wanted to play. And I said, okay, that's the blues song, Billie Jean, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, what do you mean blue and gray? And I said, well, this is what it looks like. And I kind of sketched it out. I said, don't you see colors when you listen to music? Because, of course, everybody does. And he said, "Siana, I've never seen anything like this before. And so that's when I realized, holy moly, I think I I have a thing, but I, I didn't know. And there weren't many resources that were available at the time. Finally, something popped up and it said synesthesia, blending of the senses and different types of synesthesias. Holy moly, I have like eight, about eight to ten different sensory connections, um, and most of them evolve around color. So when you taste something, you taste color. Or is I that- can yeah. So that's that's one of the weaker ones. Mm-hmm. But my smell is is pretty impressive that's
2: so interesting <laughs> it must be like, what does it like for you
0: to walk around in the world and be hit with all of these senses it's a lot but does it ever feel like debilitating or distracting yes yeah
3: yeah there's um, there's I've only heard one person thus far say it's not distracting. But most people with synesthesia would say that they've had to learn how to manage their experiences in the world because it can be actually very distracting. Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful. Don't get me wrong, because we get to experience the world in such a such a different texture. Um, emotions, I, I experience emotions in color. Pain people's personalities have color, people's voices have color there's There's just color everywhere for me. um It's just a matter of how do I process that. It's extra information mm-hmm. along with everyday life. We've well, been an artist all your life, visually
0: through painting yeah. and sketching, performing with bands with friends. Now today you describe your work as musical meditation. How did you decide to create music that
3: relaxes people? I needed it, huh. <laughs> I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. I was moving, I would just gotten married, and we had no clue what we were doing. (laughs) And uh, he would go off to work during the day, and I was home, and I was just stressed. And I had this really cool machine that was sitting in my closet. It was actually um, my looping machine, so Mm -hmm. it's what I'm using primarily now. And I decided, well, what if I just start to tinker around with it? And every day I came home, I would start to work with the the machine and, and making different songs and trying to rewrite different uh, arrangements of some of my favorite songs, which I still perform to this day. Uh, Neurl's Barkley's Crazy is my favorite. Mm-hmm. I noticed that my anxiety was starting to disappear as I was singing. So I started posting these on YouTube, started posting them on Facebook, and the responses that I was getting was very similar. Some people were saying, hey, I'm listening to this now between midterms, or I'm listening to this while I'm studying, I'm listening to this while I'm taking a break, and it's helping me so much. There was one woman that said, uh, who was wrestling with schizoaffective disorder. Mm. She said, when I listen to your music, this is the only time that the voices go away. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, so I decided this is a thing and I need to spend some time understanding the effects of music on the brain. Well, let's hear some of that as we
0: pause and go on into a break. I'm talking with Siana Altiz, who uses her synesthesia to compose evocative tracks meant to help listeners relax. Her new album, Sleeping Waters, comes out next month, October 24th. Stay with us for more on Siana's music when we return. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up a conversation with Sienna Altiz. She's a sensory music artist based in Atlanta, and her work has been described as experimental, haunting, relaxing, and for her, relaxing is really the ultimate goal. She writes music to help people pause and become more engaged with the present with songs like this: Through the Bushels. studied neuroscience and psychology while learning about your synesthesia, did you begin to base your looping patterns that you do in your music on on research that you've done on relaxation?
3: Absolutely. So how does it help? So wandering attention is something that happens while we're listening to music. If it's a song that we know, then our attention wanders and we start to think about autobiographical memories and, and different things of how the song resonates with us. Or we can start daydreaming about things that we're going to do. We can start worrying about things in the future. Right. Anything that's not not now. Everything that's not now. Exactly. And so this is something that I learned uh, from actually going to classical concerts. The phrases of silence between two movements is where our attention is suspended again. And so the silence is just as important as the sound. So that is something that I started to base my looping off of. The pause? The pause huh. mm-hmm. and the transitions. So keep the attention with the additional harmonies, with the additional backgrounds. The listeners never know what's coming next. So their attention is suspended. Mm-hmm. It's almost you're not, uh, not really allowed to wander. So I love creating my music in a way that is painting a picture, except you don't know what stroke is coming next. You don't know what color is going to come next because it's your story that's that, that you're experiencing with the music. So, what, how do
0: audiences respond to that when you're performing?
3: At the end of most songs, and it, it, still, it still throws me off, is that people are still waking back up after, after the songs are over. I
0: mean they go someplace? They're gone.
3: Yeah, yeah it's good. And I'm, and I'm thankful for it because these are the moments that we need.
0: I know you like to perform live because of the kind of interaction you get from people. This is the piece that you created live called De Novo. So when are you doing these compositions on the fly in front of a live audience? Maybe this is a crazy question, but do you, are you getting color from them? Or are you what? What are you experiencing in that moment?
3: There's a general color in in an audience. It's like a, like anticipation, the anticipation, the nervousness. You have the people that are sitting in the corner that don't know anybody in the crowd and they're tense. You have the people that came with friends or people who have been drinking already and they're loosened up and they're excited. They're, these are all different. Uh, it's like diff, like a light show or if you're looking at the northern stars, uh, northern lights, sorry, uh, you know, there's, there's such a glow. And so I, I look at that and I say, okay, this is where most people are and I, I want to get us all on the same page, so I've got to slow us all down these are the colors that I wanna create with this song. So I'm gonna create that song, get us all on the same page and then move us all together. Um, kinda, of, it, it feels almost like a, like a shepherd, but you know, people just don't know that that's kinda of how I'm seeing it. I, I wanna shepherd the space, the atmosphere, the, their energy and, and bring them into this relaxing place. I, I believe that this synesthesia, super sensory ability is almost like a superpower. And so I really, I just, I feel responsible and I want to use it well. Um, I don't think it was by mistake that I experienced this at
0: all. And one of the forms of synesthesia you experience has to do with emotions. Like Mm -hmm. you have a heightened ability to experience people's pain emotions and personality in a kind of multi-sensory way Mm -hmm. so isn't there like a character on star trek the empath
3: (laughs) Touch people (laughs) and they download all of their
0: emotions so being the psychological and physiological sponge in front of an audience what kind of effect does that have on you Oh
3: man i've got to
0: be in my own world yeah
3: yeah i've done it the other way around where i want people to accept me and what i'm doing And then I realized it just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. I've got to give what I have versus trying to receive and then give according to what I think people want. That's too much work. (laughs) But I've had to accept this superpower. I call it a superpower because I don't know any other way of, of describing it. Well, it's I've, better than calling it a debilitation. <laughs> exactly. So I once I accepted this superpower, it's been amazing and I feel like I'm taking people on a journey. It's interesting because
0: in some way this is an actual neurological thing, synesthesia, mm-hmm. but in a way it also sounds very like, I don't know, new agey or it's, an, yeah. it's another realm. It's a kind of spiritual thing. Do you think people when they come to your shows, do they know what to expect? Do they, do they know this
3: about you? Would this be obvious or they just completely get chilled out? They have no clue. Yeah. I often don't know how to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I, I usually just talk about it with my close friends. So I guess everybody listening to this is now considered a close friend of mine. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. Uh, <laughs> but I, no, I don't know how to describe it. So I just let them experience it for themselves. I think it's better to catch them off guard. In fact,
0: <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I want to hear more of your music. This is East African Chameleon. As Unfortunately, I have to say goodbye. We're mm. out of time. This is Pledge Week. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Virginia. Siana Altiz, she has a new record coming out next month in October. GPB Loves Music is the hashtag to find this and more interviews about music makers of a great variety of many colors, let's say, <laughs> in Georgia. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, La Raven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.